came across this proverb. I just wanted to share it with you as we begin to think about the Lord. So it says, love and faithfulness keep a keen safe. Okay? Through love, his throne is made secure. Interesting, isn't it? So love and faithfulness keep a keen safe. Through love, his throne is made secure. Doesn't say that he's made secure through his armies, through his physical strength, his wealth, his knowledge, his wisdom, but through love. And that really struck me, and it kind of sort of arrested me, and I thought, well, what is that saying? It's saying that there is power in love. It's saying that when we love, we have an authority. And I suppose that's what I want us to see, because we're going to be looking in Joshua 3 and 4 about the people of God facing difficulty and a hurdle And they need to know that God loves them. They need to understand the power that he has, but it's a power of love. And Katie and I were just rehearsing there. I I was going to sing to you, but I'm not going to. I don't think I will sing to you, but it it is, how good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend. His love is as great as his power and knows neither measure nor end. I say that to myself all the time, and I even sing it to myself, because we need to be reminded of the love and the power of our great God. So we're going to sing uh, God of Wonders. So let's stand and praise our God, God of Wonders. Well, let's join together in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we bow in your presence. We thank you for the privilege that we have of gathering together, of singing your praise, and of just uh, slowing our lives down to this point where we stop and we contemplate who you are, and we contemplate your love and goodness towards us. And Father, we want to say thank you for another week. Uh, We want to say thank you for all the blessings that you have given us materially and educationally through health and, uh, Lord, through our work and careers. Uh, We thank you, Father, that you have uh, brought us through, and uh, we thank you for your word to us and the opportunity that we've had to talk to you in prayer. Thank you for the things that we've done within the church. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you have been with us and walked with us. And Father, we pray that you will help us this morning to uh, look upwards as the people of Israel uh, had to do. They had to keep their eyes on you. And Father, when we look at you, we want to see as we've been singing a God of wonder, a God who created this world so perfectly and wonderfully. Uh, We want to say, of course, thank you for the Lord Jesus in every aspect of his life. Thank you for his humility. Thank you for how he talked to people, just the gentleness with which he approached them, how he understood their hearts and drew them out. That when he said difficult things, that he said it because he knew that that needed to be dealt with and that he would 
lead them through it. Thank you that he had so many options to uh, go back, as it were, and to do something different, but he kept his face towards Jerusalem and went to the cross. And Father, we thank you that he was prepared to be humbled, humiliated, um, spat upon, and hurt, and ultimately give his life and shed his blood because he did not want us to be punished in eternity. Father, we marvel at the depth of his love. We marvel at the wonder of his grace. We marvel, Father, just at the beauty of the story of salvation and of this focus of salvation and the person of salvation. And, Father, we just rejoice afresh in what you have done for us in Jesus. And so, Father, we come and we confess our sins. We recognize, Father, that we do not give to you all that you deserve, that we so often doubt you, particularly in the difficulties. And that, Father, that we take our eyes off you and that we see the problems, and then we get angry and bitter and critical, that we look to other things, that we have so many idols. And, Father, we pray that you will refocus us again this morning, that you will help us to see the truth of who you are, and that, Father, that repentance will come easy to us because we will see that we have walked in ways that have taken us into cul-de-sacs and into pain and hardship. And, Father, that we will look to you. So, Father, what a privilege it is just to hear your voice again. We pray that we will hear it through the words of Joshua 3 and 4. We pray that we will listen carefully and that, Father, that you will help us all as we participate in this service of worship, to hear afresh from you. Father, encourage those of us who are struggling. Father, give us guidance, those of us who do not know the way ahead. Father, encourage those of us who are in the midst of huge difficulties, some of them that we cannot even speak to others. And Father, I pray that you will do a mighty work as you dwell with us this morning. And we pray and ask it all for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're, as you see, we're going to hear about prayer ministry. And uh, we've been doing that, just reminding you of the different ministries that we've been, uh, we have in the church. So Anne is going to come and speak to that uh, just now. Many of you know that um, prayer ministry takes place almost every Sunday morning after our service. In many respects, it's a continuation of our service. It takes place here uh, at the front of the church beside the organ. Every word and prayer spoken is completely confidential. Every member of our prayer ministry team is trained in prayer ministry. You will notice there are always two members at the table available to pray. Who is prayer ministry for? Well, everyone is welcome, young and old, male or female, long-standing church members, new church members, and even visitors. 
all are welcome to come to us so that we can pray with you. What do people ask us to pray for? Well, we are asked to pray for many different situations. Sometimes situations in our lives are so difficult that we cannot pray on our own. Some people find it hard to pray. We can all be overwhelmed at different stages in our lives because of pressures. Some people may have challenges in the week ahead. They may be facing a medical procedure or maybe a difficult work situation. Some may have health issues. Others come for prayer on behalf of a family member or a friend whom they are concerned about. Some people come to us to give thanks to God for answered prayer. What is prayer ministry? Well, prayer ministry is not counseling. We do not counsel people. Matthew 18, verse 20 says, For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. And so we welcome the presence of God, listening to him, asking him to work in a particular situation as God's Holy Spirit guides us and helps us to pray. When we pray, we do not try to fix things or people ourselves, but we bring every request to God. Difficulties and challenges which are shared with us are handed over to him. This can mean a burden is lifted. You see, because God loves us so much, he hears us when we pray. He loves us to come to him in prayer, whether that is personal, but particularly personal prayer, or shared prayer like here. It's that simple and yet profound. In 1 Peter 5 verse 7, he says, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. Our team members consider it a privilege to be involved in this ministry. We have seen many prayers answered, which is very encouraging. One in particular, when a very difficult work situation was completely transformed. Sometimes um, prayers are answered in a very surprising way or in a way that we just totally didn't expect. I would also like to say that prayer ministry is all about God working and not about the prayer ministry team. If you have a need or a concern, we would love to pray with you. Or maybe you would like to give thanks to God for his goodness and acknowledging his goodness. Whatever the reason, you are very welcome to come. Jesus says, come to me all who are uh, heavy laden and I will give you rest. If you'd like to know anything more about prayer ministry, you can speak to me or Myrtle Thompson. We both head up this ministry. Or you can speak to any member of the prayer ministry team. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Anne. And indeed, I want to commend that to you. Folks, if you have the, your Bibles, let's open them at Joshua chapter 3. I'm going to read that uh, for you myself this morning, just to keep, I'm going to read it quite quickly, um, and I'll read to chapter 4, verse 7, and then skip over to verse 19 uh, as well, since it's a long reading. 
So we've uh, come along in the story, and uh, uh, Rahab has protected the spies. They've gone back with their uh, very encouraging uh, report, um, and it's an early morning start uh, for the folks in Israel at that time. So Joshua chapter 3, I think it's page 217, um, and let's hear God's word. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priest, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the, Jordan wa- the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Gergeshites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is in flood all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the, in the vicinity of Serathan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone in his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Then skip on to verse 19. 
On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Amen. And we thank God for his word. So, yeah. Boys and girls, if you'd like to come to the front. If you were out walking in the mountains or far away somewhere and you came across a big river and you had to get to the other side, how might you get across? Don't answer that question yet. I have some suggestions for you here and you can tell me which are good and which are not. You could try this. You could put your bag over your top of your head. Aaron, that's you at the back, is it? Yeah, he's nodding, it is. So he got very wet crossing it. Uh, maybe that's, maybe not a good idea? Okay, watch, now watch carefully because these are gonna go by very quickly. What about this one? Okay, hold on, hold on. Okay, that looks, that looks pretty safe, doesn't it? Okay, let's see what happens. Okay, so anytime you're doing something funny and somebody, anytime you're doing something dangerous and somebody points a camera at you, be careful. All right, so that's not a very good idea. Let's, what about this one? Let's try this one. Okay, that's not gonna work very well, is it? No. Now, watch this one very, very carefully, because are, these are guys your age. Wow, those guys were good. They really were able to manage those stilts really well. So, three or four different ways of getting across a big, wide river. Now, in the, in the, in the story Sam just read to us, we had heard that God had led his people, the Israelites, into a land he had promised them, the promised land. But there was a problem. There was a huge, big river in the middle of the way. How were they going to get across? There were about... 
two million of the Israelite people, we think. So there were elderly people, there were young people, there were mothers with babies, there were children, there were all of the animals that they had. So it was, and the, we were also told the river was flowing really fast. So what was he going to do? I'm sure the people were thinking, this is impossible. But when something is impossible for, when we think something is impossible, men and women think something is impossible, God does amazing things. He does, he performs miracles. And God explained to Joshua exactly how he was going to do it. And I'm sure Joshua was thinking, really, is that gonna work? But Joshua trusted and he obeyed God. And we heard the instructions. In fact, Joshua said to his people in verse five, tomorrow the Lord will do an amazing thing among you. So Joshua gave the instructions told the priests, take the Ark of the Covenant, go down, into the, go down into the river. Those priests had a lot of faith to lead and do that, and they did. The people crossed over behind the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and when everybody got safely across to the other side, Joshua sent 12 men to pick up 12 stones that were in the middle of the river, and he built a monument. Now, why did he, why did he build a monument? He built a monument to remind people that when, and he said, when your children come along and they look at these 12 stones, it's to, to, to remind people that at this point, God did an amazing thing. So uh, parents will tell their children, grandparents will tell their children, they will remind people about the amazing thing and the amazing power that God did. He was there and he led them across the Jordan River. This was truly amazing. It was a miracle. Uh, the Israelites knew that they, the Israelites knew that only God could do something as amazing as this. And it was really important for them to know that God loved them and God was with them. But more importantly than that, God was in front of them and he was leading them. Because this promised land that he was leading them into was gonna have its challenges. There was gonna be trouble there were going to be battles that were going to be fought and things were going to be hard. And the only way they were going to be able to do it was if they knew God loved them and was with them and led them all the way. So boys and girls, the thing that I want you to remember is that that is equally true today. There are times when we will face challenges and difficulties and troubles. And for us, they will look to be completely impossible but God can do things in amazing ways. And he promises to be, to be with those who, who love him, not only to be with us, but also to lead us. To, to, and all that he asks us to do is to trust him and to obey him. You remember that? Thanks for listening. Okay, well done. It's a long time since we've sung that great song. So, uh, boys and girls, you're free to go. Um, to K2 and Sunday special, so that's great. Well, can I just say again that you are very welcome to the service if you're visiting with us. It's lovely to have you. Uh, do make yourself known to us, sign our visitor's book, and there's tea and coffee downstairs. Who knows, there might even be a sausage, a piece of egg bread or something else as well. Uh, you never know what you'll find downstairs. So you're very welcome to stay. It's lovely to have you. 
Um, if you're returning to us, it's lovely to have you as well. And uh, we praise God for you and, and welcome you in the name of the Lord. You'll see that next week we continue our series in Joshua. We're looking at Joshua chapter 5. Um, and uh, we hope to have Karen and Ramon, um, uh, who are working with YWAM in Mexico, uh, with us. Uh, Karen uh, is a member of this church, and uh, uh, Ramon and her work in Monterrey in, in Mexico. If you look at number four, you see that they are looking for accommodation in Dublin. And this is a heartfelt plea to some of you uh, to open your home to them. Uh, for that period of time there, uh, they have an appointment in the Chilean embassy, um, and it would really help them if someone could put them up. We are not able to have them in the manse this time, um, and it would be great if someone could do that, even for a part of it. Um, and I'm uh, you know, hoping that they'll be able to come and speak to us next week as well. So I leave that with you. You'll see, of course, we've heard about prayer ministry. International Cafe begins this Friday. Amazing to think, isn't it? It's the last... Uh, last day of January at the end of this week, um, and uh, we're meeting here at 7.30 uh, in the church building. Uh, if you're an international student, do come. Bring your friends. If you're at an international college, let, them, uh, be, let it be known. We have some posters you could take with you as well, um, and uh, if you want to talk to one of us about that, um, and you can find out more about it through that uh, email address there. Um, yeah, all the other things. Uh, faith and work isn't on for a month. Um, if you did go to it, talk to me. I'd love to hear about it. And you can hear about our home groups, of course, uh, in, uh, at, in the website there. We're revamping the, the... We're having a look at home groups, and we're kind of uh, working at that at the moment. So uh, that's why we haven't really pushed it too hard. Uh, but the home groups that are working are there, and you can have a look at them as well. So let's prepare our hearts as we uh, come to hear God's word. We're going to sing again, praise, uh, guide me, O thy great Redeemer. Um, and of course, you'll know that these words are based on that sort of wilderness journey. And the last verse comes to the Jordan and uh, the assurance of passing over. So let's stand and sing this great hymn. Well, well done, everybody. That was good. It's lovely to hear your singing. I'm hearing you well this morning, uh, which is lovely. And I forgot to say thank you to all those who made the breakfast, brought the stuff, served us, and some of them are probably still working down there. Uh, we are grateful for the, the welcome committee and for all those who joined them in helping this morning. If you have your Bibles, do open them at chapter 3 and 4, and we'll have a look at this together. Not sure if this is the best title, but I, I, I call this Life Lived with Your Eyes on Jesus. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll have a look at this. Um, let me just summarize it, as it well, before we, we get into it. The, the people of Israel have been walking for 40 years. It's been difficult, and now they're camped on the edge of the Jordan River. God had promised the land beyond the river to them, yet the obstacle of the swollen river lay before them. If you look at verse 15, you'll see that it was in flood. Some people estimate it was over a mile wide at that time. They are taking some rest. They have three days contemplating the task ahead, and they're waiting for instruction. What I want us to keep in mind is what lessons are they going to learn in this journey of obedience? 
What amazing things, verse 5, that, isn't, that verse really stuck out to me. What amazing things will they see? We know what they saw, but they didn't know at that time. And they, they see this amazing miracle, isn't it? It's an incredible miracle. The water is piled up probably 20 miles upriver, and they are able to walk across on dry ground. Unbelievable. And God gets them across safely, and they're camped on the other side at Gilgal. What did they learn about God on this journey? What lessons does it teach us? And I think the big question for me, the one I've been wrestling with this week, is how do we apply that miracle of crossing and the wonderful promises it brings to ourselves in ARPC in 2020? It's a huge question. So firstly, I want us to kind of think of the idea, this apparently is the Jordan River in flood, that we may be in need of a miracle. So here we are as a church, standing before an impossible and immovable object. The gulf between us and the land around us seems enormous. The people on the street, the worker in the office, the homeless in our balcony, the visitor to the area, by and large, don't know anything about us. And their perception of us, according to Rico Tice in his book, Honest Evangelism, is that we are weird, that we believe what is untrue, that we are totally irrelevant, and even that we are intolerant and that we are dangerous. It appears to be an impossible river to cross. And then if you take a moment and you just look around you, you will see that those who attend this church are full of ethnic, language, cultural diversity, and theological differences. And we wonder how such a diverse group of people can be united in love for God and love for each other and united in purpose. It appears to be an impossible river to cross. However, I suspect that whenever you think about this passage, you don't apply it in those general senses. You're thinking about your own life. I had a whole list of things, and I've taken them out. But you know what's been going on in your life. You know the difficulties that you have to face, and it's tough for some of you. I know that. Your struggles may be hidden to others, but they're real, and they seem so hard, so wide, and so difficult to get across. Do your problems you face look like a river in flood? The question is, what does God want you to learn from this story that might help you? And to those who believe in God, we would love for God to stop the waters of the Jordan, metaphorically speaking, wouldn't we? To do a miracle and get us to the other side. And we take verse three, or chapter 3 and verse 5, and we long for God to act miraculously to intervene. And so we're standing at this swollen river. We're on this side we want to get to the other of our impossible circumstances, and we're hoping for a miracle. Let's pray as we look at the text. 
Father, we pray that you will help us to understand how good a God you are. And I pray that we will be able to see the lessons that you want us to learn from this and to apply them to each of our lives, individually and as a church. And that, Father, that we will then be able to face life with our eyes fixed on you. And we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at the text, you'll see that firstly, um, well, that, I wanted to kind of put that up. It didn't really work, is it? So the black area is where they are. They want to cross over. That's the blue and come into the, into the land. So that's roughly where, that's where they are actually in that way. But I want to talk about this, God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant was the sign of the presence of God. It was a box. Um, the uh, Good News Bible describes it as a covenant box, very um, uninspiring. And it c- contained the symbols of God's presence. It was carried by the priests. It's mentioned, I think, 17 times in these two uh, chapters. The priests take the lead, they go ahead of the people, and the people are to follow it and keep their distance. I want you to look at verse 4, because it tells us that what, so then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before, but keep a distance of about a thousand yards, 900 meters uh, between you and the ark, and do not go near it. And if, if you're like me, you're saying, well, why was that? Why keep this distance? And I think the common answer, of course, is that because God is holy, and this is the symbol of his presence, you see the priests are not able to touch it, um, and it's that there's a sort of reverence, isn't there, and a distance. God is there, we are here, and we're to keep him at distance. And I think that's right, of course. But I think the thing that struck me about this is that I also think it's because that they can see it. If they get too close to it, they can't all see it. Uh, Ray's probably right. Two, well, I presume you, you looked that up, Ray. Two million people? Amazing. So if they're going to see it, it has to stay at a distance. And they must be able to see it. And the reality of that, I think, is striking. Because what they're doing, then, is keeping their eyes on God's presence. They're not looking at the river. We're not looking at the problem, which is uppermost in their sight, is the Lord. He goes before them. He shows the way. He is the way. He will plot a path. He is their focus. And that, I think, is the principle that we need to grasp and to copy. So let us slow that down and let us consider how we should practice doing this when we are in trouble and the way ahead is impossible. And the first thing that we see in verse 5 is that they are to consecrate themselves. Okay, consecrate yourselves. That means to be clean, to be holy, to be set apart, to be committed. And in a religious sense, of course, that means to be committed to God. In Joshua's day, people did this in various ways. They submitted themselves to God's instructions. They sacrificed their um, you know, their, uh, their animals on the altar. They actually washed their clothes, I think is probably what they were doing here. We read that in Exodus 19 and 10 before they went over the Red Sea. That's what they did as well. And, in, and if you look in verse 6 as well, you see that they keep these instructions. They actually do what God wants them to do. 
And folks, I think this is the most profound moment of this whole story. This is what I want us to grasp, if we will. This is a life-changing moment. This determines whether they will go ahead or they will stay where they are or even return to the wilderness. And it's the temptation, of, of course, is to avoid the commitment, to turn to something else. And if you turn back with me, I, I just wanted to highlight this. If you go back to Deuteronomy, which is just a few pages back, chapter 30, verses 11 to 20, I just read 14 to 16, I think. Well, I might read from 11 because it really... Moses has given the same instruction to the people. He's saying, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and obey it or proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Verse 14. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways to, and to keep his commands, decrees and laws, then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. That is what commitment to God means. It means knowing what he says, it means obeying what he says. It means listening to the instruction of his word. And it means holding tightly to it. You will remember that when Jesus came, he began to teach them about uh, his death and his resurrection. And he told them many difficult things. And as it became clear that he wasn't becoming a political leader and a, and, and a Messiah in the sense that they wanted, the people began to wonder, should we follow this man or not? Even his disciples were tempted to, to go away. And you can read that in John chapter 6. And so they face a choice, don't they? They face a choice and a response. And what did they say? Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. It's a moment of consecration. It's a moment of commitment. It's not natural. We don't naturally do that. That is of the Spirit. That is God's prompting in our lives. It's for those of us who are Christians or it's that moment of becoming a Christian. We listen to what he says. We take one step at a time, and we walk in that particular direction. We hope rather than despair. We love rather than be angry. We persevere rather than give up. We seek help and share with one another rather than go it alone because we look to God. And folks, I share the testimonies of people in this church who have done just that because they say to me things like, Sam, I have loved the old hymns. 
and I've loved the truth contained within them. And in the difficulties, I have looked to the truth of who God is, and I've held to him, and I've persevered with him. That is what you've told me about the Psalms. And that's what the Psalms are brilliant at, because it's when God's people are in difficulty and they have expressed that difficulty honestly on the page, and yet they've said, I've looked to God and he has seen me through. And sometimes you have told me that people have sent you a note or a text, or they've just arrived in a visit, or just that they've encouraged you in a prayer because they've lifted your hearts from the problem and they've helped you to see God. We sing, turn your eyes towards Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is the profound moment that's happening here. Will they obey and will they trust God? even when they don't know what the outcome's going to be. Next, we see that God acts. I couldn't find a picture, of course. It doesn't make any sense where you can't see the water. <laughs> if it's 20 miles away, you can't see the water, by the way. So this doesn't, is not how it happened, as far as I can read from what the Scriptures say. But they, the ark's in the middle. The people are pouring over. You see the sense of how big it is. So the water heaps up at a town called Adam. It's 20 miles upstream, and there's a wide track of riverbed to go across. I actually love the little verse. If you look in chapter 4 and verse 10, um, I think it's there. Yes, it is. Yep. Do you see the very last bit? The people hurried over. I would hurry over too if it were me, um, because I'm sure that I would have been scared about what might have happened, um, and I wouldn't want to be hanging about but really it's saying, isn't it, that everything went smoothly. It's saying that there were no obstacles. It was saying that God opened the way and they were able to go through on dry land. He could have brought them through on the dry land day or in the dry season. But he chose not to do that, of course, because he wants to learn a lesson. David Jackman says in his commentary, come into the land physically, solely because of a miracle. This is designed to teach us that the essential principle that only by the same supernatural divine power of the covenant Lord will the whole land be conquered and become their possession. So God acts, in this case, miraculously. I'm going to return to the miracle later on, but I just want us to then look at this little bit about remembering. Chapter 4 is all about remembering. They select uh, from each of the 12 tribes uh, a person. Uh, they take 12 stones from the Jordan Riverbed, and they placed them at the site where the priests stood in the middle of the riverbed. And after the people have crossed over, they take them up again and place them at the edge of the camp in Gilgal. Actually, it's not an easy story to read because it kind of repeats itself. And there has been some debate about whether there are two sets of 12 stones and all that. I just want you to know that when you read it. Um, but I think probably what happened is they put the stones in the middle and then they took them up again and took them with them. And what do these stones mean? That's the big thing, isn't it? Uh, verse 6, uh, when the children ask you, what do these stones mean? And then these are a memorial to the people. Folks, I mean, we could talk a lot about parents passing on the faith, couldn't we? Um, that's what we try to do as a church as well to our children. Um, that is what we're supposed to do, isn't it? Um, 
There's a close link, of course, with the Exodus, and it reminds them, of course, that God is powerful and that he is to be feared. We go to the end of chapter 4. That's what he did so that we might know that he is powerful and that we might always fear the Lord. And I do want to put that link with power and love in there so that when we think of God's power, that we think of his love. God speaks, we obey, God acts, we remember. That's the gist of this story. And the link for us, of course, is to the death and resurrection of Jesus and the communion service and the tangible elements of bread and wine because we do this in remembrance of him. And for the people of Israel, this is the first step on a journey. There are many other hurdles to be overcome, specifically the seven tribes occupying the land that we read about in 310, which may be more daunting. And we'll see how they get on, of course, as the book unfolds. But this is the question that I want to spend most of our time thinking about. What does do these stones mean? I think the temptation that I have been wrestling with, and I hope I can explain this well enough to you, is that we tend to then just think, you know, a straight line from then to now. So I came across this little chorus. I think it sums it up well. Got any rivers that you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains that you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. And if we are just to apply that like that, then we're going to be expecting God to be doing miracles. But I suppose at the start, I'm going to try and say to you that I don't think we should expect God to do miracles. And I want to try and explain that. Firstly, I'm not going to deny that God can and does perform miracles. However, this is a miracle that never occurred again. It was part of God's salvation history. Um, it's a story. We call it historical salvation narrative. It's a linear story. It moves through time. This was about 1200 BC. We've come through Jesus. We're now at 2020 AD, and we're heading towards a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus will come back again. That means that though God can do miracles, that is the impossible. It does not mean he always will. And if we believe that God will always perform a miracle, that's what I think some of us believe. With our circumstances and our difficulties, that means that we are the people of Israel. We've got our sandals on, we're before the river, and we're asking God to part this river, whatever it would be. And it is important, and I want to say that again, that the Bible is not written for me. I am not Joshua, as I said in the first thing, and you are not the people of Israel directly in that way. We can never assume that God will do exactly what he did for Joshua and the people then. And it's not a measure of our faith to believe that God will miraculously part the Jordan by some miraculous divine intervention. That is not his purpose at all. Now, the reason I'm laboring with this is because I used to believe this. And I've told this story before, and it's come to my mind, and I think I'll just tell it to you quickly. I read this passage when I was in first year at university, and I had come home to Ballycastle, my hometown, 
and it was my summer holidays after first year. And the person who I read this passage told me that I could claim anything and God would do it for me if it wasn't his will and, you know, that he would just part the Jordan and I would get it done. So I had a concern, a good concern, for the young people of the town that I used to work with our church with in an outreach that we called the Open Door, which was a little house that was connected with our church. We turned into a youth club. But these lads were now all in a, what we would call a games room, like a slot machines area, playing pool, all of that in an area in Ballycastle. So I got this idea, well, God will do anything for me, and I want to talk to these guys, so I'll go to this person, and I'll ask him to stop, you know, get asked him to give me a chance to speak to these lads. And I was so afraid. I was absolutely petrified. And the sad thing was, I was petrified after I'd done it as much as I'd done it. But he did. He stopped the machines. I told them about Jesus, and then I walked out again. And as far as I know, nothing ever came of it. And afterwards, I couldn't understand what had happened to me at all. I just didn't know whether that was the right way to go at all. I just knew I couldn't live like that forever and ever. And that had a profound effect on me, because then I had to kind of rethink this all again. And I suppose I want to try and tell you that there's a different way to do this. And it's a way that doesn't involve doing as it were, expecting unbelievable things. It's just that God does sometimes do it and sometimes he doesn't. So we know life is many intransigent and insolvable problems and difficulties, but if we interpret this story in a literal direct way, we can expect that those metaphorical rivers will miraculously part if we can have faith. The problem comes, folks, when they don't part. The problem comes whenever you ask God for something. And I could list all sorts of things that I know that you have asked God for and he hasn't answered. So what do you do? What you tend to do is that you tend to blame yourself. You tend to become guilty. And you say, I'm too sinful. I am not good enough. I haven't consecrated myself enough. I don't love God enough. I'm not kind enough. And you never are. Because grace means that you don't need to be. It's grace you need, not being better. And then if you don't do that, what you do is you go to God and you say, God, why don't you answer me? You're not loving. You're not kind. You don't want the best for me. You don't care. And so you then tend to go into a spiritual depression and you live your life in great disappointment with God and you expect nothing from him. And that's not the way that we're to live. Because God will act on your behalf. That's what it's at stake here. And the question is, how does he primarily reveal himself? What is this text teaching us about God? He can do the miracle. He is powerful. He keeps his promises. He cares about his people. He is holy. He is to be respected. And he wants us to be obedient. And if you would, will you turn to me to this passage in fact, you don't have to. You can just look at it here. Because we quote this, don't we? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And we stop there. 
who have been called according to his purpose. And then we make up what his purpose is. That's the point I'm trying to get across. His purpose is that he'll part the Red Sea, he'll part the Jordan, that the purpose is he'll take away my pain, the purpose is that he'll make me better, the purpose is that he'll give me a life partner, the purpose is. But what is his purpose? His purpose is, if you read on in verse 29, which I'm going to read, I don't think it is up there actually, so I'll have to find it. Romans 8 and verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That is what God is trying to do in each of us. He wants us to be more and more like his Son. And that is what these purposes, what these problems are for. As we see our own hearts responding to the heat of the difficult, impossible situations, we see the areas that God wants to finish his work in, primarily in our hearts and our relationship with him. When we see these things, if we're afraid of being alone, he wants to deal with that. If we're afraid of people, he wants to deal with that. If we respond in anger, he wants to deal with that. If we're critical people, he wants to deal with that. If we run away from God to idols, to career and to sport, he wants to deal with that. If we want material success and love of ease, he wants to deal with that. If we turn to pornography, he wants to deal with that. To binging on Netflix, to procrastination. You see, what God wants to do is, is, is work in our hearts. He wants to part, as it were, the sin that's in our hearts so that he can enter in. And so that he can take more and more of the land that is in our hearts. And of course, we do not do that with a box of symbols of God. We look to Jesus. And that's why I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 13. Verse 3. Consider him who endured such sinful opposition, uh, opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Folks, God can and will bring you through everything in all of life. He does that by helping us face the reality of our sinful hearts and by changing us and conforming us to the image of his Son. And that is a beautiful thing. It is wonderful to see the character of Christ in each of our lives. And it is a miraculous thing. It doesn't happen by self-effort. It doesn't happen other than by obedience to his word and by him pouring his Holy Spirit into our lives. And I say to you again that God may never change your circumstances. He may never make you well. He may never give you a life partner, but he will bring you to the other side. He will do something special in your heart because his promise holds, and one day, we will be in heaven 
with a new body, and we will be in a new earth as well. And it all happens through this miraculous work of God in our hearts. And we need to remember it in the cross through Jesus. I pray that we'll think about this and that we'll wrestle with it and that we will see the progress that God wants to make in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I started this off by saying we are in need of a miracle, and indeed we are. We're in, a, in need of a miracle of becoming a new creation if we've never given our lives to the Lord. And we're in need of a miracle of the ongoing grace of change in our sinful hearts. And Father, we do it as the people of Israel did it. We look to a God who is loving and kind and powerful. We hear what he says, we obey him, he acts, and we remember. And I pray, Father, that you will keep us on this journey, and that you will help us to see the beauty of the journey, and that, Father, that you will do a mighty, mighty work in our hearts, to your glory and in your name. Amen. So let's worship him as we give our offering to him now. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now with our prayers for others. Already Christmas seems like a dream to us. And as the glitter and the wrappings fade away, the poverty and isolation of so many is made plain again. We see the hurts and hungers that have not gone away. And we know that the injustice that runs like a vivid scar across the soul of our society remains raw and sore. Father, as we go to the polls in the next two weeks to elect a new government, we pray that you will guide us in our voting to those who will take their responsibilities seriously and work to create a just and fair society that looks after the weakest among us. Father, give us a government who will initiate a housing policy that will enable affordable accommodation for all in our society, rather than rewarding the greed of those who seek to maximize profits. May our society become a place where homelessness is unknown and where young people have a realistic expectation of owning a home of their own. Father, hear our prayers for those whose grip on life is loosening, for those whose hope for better times is fading, for those whose health is far from good, and for those whose frailty brings some new frustration. Lord God, hear our prayers. For families broken, for friendships shattered, for communities on edge, and for a world uneasy with itself, Lord God, hear our prayers. For those who have never heard the gospel, for those who have heard but have rejected you, for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, and for their persecutors 
Lord God, hear our prayers. Father, we recognize that it's not enough to pray for things if we ourselves do not work towards them. So let us work and pray today for justice addressing exclusion, for education addressing ignorance, for open-handed love replacing tight-fisted selfishness, for commonwealth replacing private greed. Within our community here, Father, let our actions match our words and our willingness to welcome and invite become the hallmarks of our faith so that in every corner of our church's life we may bear the image of the Word made flesh in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks, David. Well, folks, let's stand and sing this great hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And uh, yeah, let's consecrate ourselves to the Lord as we do so before we enter into our uh, weekly work. And so let's stand to sing. Well, let's bless one another with these words. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.